All right, welcome to an off-site edition of the Week in Review, folks. We're standing outside the Richland County Courthouse in downtown Columbia, South Carolina. We've got multiple stories that we're bringing to you from this location. The biggest of them, obviously, the latest developments in the Murdoch Murders Crime and Corruption Saga. A big hearing held in this courthouse today on that issue. We're also here covering a Probegate story. If you're not familiar with this, an investigation into political corruption at the South Carolina State House. This news outlet exclusively reported on that story back in 2014 and continued to cover it over the next four years as multiple state lawmakers found themselves in significant criminal trouble related to that inquiry. We had a hearing on that today involving the godfather of South Carolina politics, Richard Quinn. He appeared in court on multiple charges, including perjury and obstruction of justice. We've got a recap of that we're going to give you. Also, we're going to talk about a major economic development scandal based in York County, South Carolina, involving the Carolina Panthers of the National Football League. This news outlet broke some big news on that story this week as well, and we're going to walk you through what that investigation entails and its ramifications on the future of crony capitalism in South Carolina. Stay tuned for all that and more here on this edition of the Week in Review. All right, so I'm standing outside the Richland County Courthouse in downtown Columbia, South Carolina, where in about an hour, disbarred attorney and accused killer Alec Murdoch will make an appearance before South Carolina Circuit Court Judge Clifton Newman related to a flurry of motions from his attorneys Dick Harputlian and Jim Griffin. But before we get to that hearing, another hearing was held in this very building in front of a judge who has some connections to the Murdoch Murders Crime and Corruption Saga, Carmen Mullen. Now, if you've followed this news outlet for some time, you'll know that Mullen was the judge on Probegate, an expansive investigation into corruption at the South Carolina State House that brought down multiple Republican legislative leaders and drew a bead on the consultant who was known as the godfather, Richard Quinn, the Quindom, arguably the most powerful political consultant South Carolina has ever seen. Now, Quinn made it out of that initial investigation unscathed. However, he was charged after the fact with perjury and obstruction of justice for allegedly not being truthful with investigators and prosecutors who were probing that state house corruption ring. Now, this case is incredibly complicated, and it stems from a dispute over prosecutorial authority. The original prosecutor on this case was South Carolina First Circuit Solicitor David Pascoe. Now, in January of 2021, the South Carolina Supreme Court issued a ruling which concluded that Pascoe had authority to investigate in certain connect, uh, cases tied to Probegate but lacked authority to investigate in other cases. Based on that decision, South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson sent the rest of those cases, the ones where Pasco did not have authority, to Seventh Circuit Solicitor Barry Barnett. Barnett decided last May, May of 2021, to re-indict Richard Quinn on those perjury and obstruction of justice charges. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. Quinn's attorneys argued in court today that because of that questionable authority, he should not be held liable for any perjury charges that took place before that statewide grand jury and some impassioned arguments were made on his behalf. Judge Mullen did not issue a ruling on whether to quash that perjury indictment. She said that she would take the matter under advisement and rule on it sooner rather than later. Stay tuned to Fitz News for the very latest on this Probegate story, which we exclusively reported on back in 2014. All right, so arguably the biggest story we broke this week, certainly from a national perspective, involves the Carolina Panthers, specifically a criminal investigation into this team, into the botched command economic development deal that was supposed to bring the Panthers practice facility and corporate headquarters to Rock Hill, South Carolina. Now, as this news outlet reported last year, there were serious problems with this deal. And earlier this year, 
the company owned by Panthers owner David Tepper that was responsible for developing this property filed for bankruptcy. Now this bankruptcy pr proceeding resulted in a slew of creditors seeking to get their money back from this deal, including multiple local governments up in York County, including the County of York and including the City of Rock Hill. Now in the settlement process for these agreements, folks, this is where things get particularly tricky. This news outlet learned and exclusively reported earlier this week that language in one of those settlement agreements, particularly the deal between Tepper's company and York County, included language which would have, in my opinion, bordered on obstruction of justice. Specifically, York County officials were told to essentially withdraw previous statements they had made alleging impropriety on the part of Tepper's businesses related to this failed economic development deal. Now things jumped to a much higher energy level the following day after we reported this on Thursday when late in the afternoon multiple law enforcement agencies and the office of South Carolina's 16th Circuit Solicitor Kevin Brackett issued statements indicating that yes there is a criminal investigation and the statement from one of those entities the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division or SLED listed a huge target range for that investigation. That, that included David Tepper, the owner of the Panthers. It included his hedge fund, a $13 billion hedge fund that Tepper created and launched and continues to run. It also included all of the various uh, companies involved in the Panthers deal and the company that owns the Panthers itself. So just a huge list of potential targets. And folks, even as we are reporting this story today, we are learning of additional developments, a legislative inquiry into the South Carolina Department of Commerce could be in order regarding this economic development deal. Now, if you recall years ago, back in 2019, when this agreement was first being negotiated, lawmakers and Governor Henry McMaster vowed that it would create more than 5,700 jobs and a multi-billion dollar economic impact. Now, it turned out those numbers were not accurate. Not accurate, not even close, in fact. State Senator Dick Harpootlin, who we'll actually be speaking with later today as we cover this Murdoch Murders Crime and Corruption hearing, State Senator Dick Harpootlin challenged these numbers from the very beginning. He hired his own economist to study this deal, and that economist found that the deal would create fewer than 500 jobs. So a huge differential. Now, will commerce be investigated? How will that potentially implicate the administration of Governor Henry McMaster, which was the top cheerleader for this failed deal, we don't know yet. And again, we don't even know what will come of the criminal investigation up in York County. But the news that the Panthers were part of this investigation sent shockwaves across the national media. According to my sources, it has also had a seismic impact up in NFL headquarters in New York City, because obviously any involvement of an NFL owner in a criminal investigation is cause for serious and significant concern by the league office. Now, if you follow this news outlet, if you've been a part of our audience for long enough, you know where we stood on this deal. From the very beginning, back in 2018, or I'm sorry, 2019, Fitz News came out strongly and aggressively against this agreement. Not necessarily because of the job numbers, not necessarily because we thought there would be any funny business with the money, but simply on the basis that crony capitalism has not worked in South Carolina. Palmetto State consistently ranks at or near the bottom of the national rankings in terms of its workforce, in terms of the money that workforce makes, its income levels. Again, these are key indicators of prosperity, and the Palmetto State consistently lags well behind the rest of the nation on them. And the reason? Our leaders keep doing deals like this. Our leaders continue to give away tax revenues to wealthy, well-heeled, 
corporations and entities and individuals like David Tepper, a multi-billionaire. Tepper is, in fact, the richest owner in the National Football League, net worth north of $16 billion. Why does he need taxpayer handouts? And again, this was a consistent position not only with the Panthers, but a wide range of economic development deals. Fitznews has consistently challenged state leaders, instead of doling out these corporate welfare handouts, give the people more of their money back, or at the very least, target that relief to the small businesses who form the backbone of job creation in South Carolina, who are responsible for more than 90% of the jobs that are created here in South Carolina. Let them get the relief. Let them get those tax breaks and see what that does for the economy. Now, again, Fitz News has been the tip of the spear on Panthers-related coverage for many years, dating back to when these talks first began. Count on us to continue following this story and count on us specifically to continue following the latest developments in the criminal investigation involving David Tepper and his various business holdings. So when we rolled into the Richland County Courthouse on this beautiful Friday afternoon here in downtown Columbia, South Carolina, like most of the press corps in attendance, we were expecting fireworks. And why not? Based on the filings submitted in this case over the last few weeks, huge holes have been poked into the state's case against Alec Murdoch, the disbarred attorney who stands accused of killing his wife and younger son at the family's hunting property down in Colleton County, South Carolina, back in June of 2021. This case has drawn international attention. All of you here at News have been following it for the better part of the last few years. And again, you've come to accustom fireworks at these hearings. We've seen these attorneys spar back and forth on repeated occasions in the past. Dick Harpootlian and Jim Griffin, the attorneys for Alec Murdoch, veteran trial lawyers here in South Carolina who know their way around all the courtrooms and courthouses in this state, know them like the back of their hand, folks. So we expected a back and forth on this case. We expected some significant debate related to key key filings that were submitted by Harpootlian, including a voluminous 96-page filing submitted the day before Thanksgiving, which alleged that the prosecution had bullied, intimidated, and withheld evidence, some serious allegations, again, against investigators, against prosecutors, who the defense attorneys have accused of hiding the ball. Now, the key debate here, folks, is over a shirt, particularly a white shirt worn by Alec Murdoch on the night he's accused of killing his wife and younger son. That shirt was initially ruled by a forensic expert hired by the state, again, not the defense, hired by the state, was originally determined to t contain transfer stains, transfer blood stains, meaning from someone who had just discovered the dead bodies of his wife and child, which is what Alec Murdoch claimed happened on that evening of June 7, 2021. However, upon further review, about a month and a half after that initial report was filed, the same forensic expert concluded that the shirt contained blood spatter, which was consistent with someone who had shot one of the victims. And again, we believe that that victim was Paul Murdoch, 22-year-old son of Alec Murdoch. Now, what happened here? According to the defense's filing, on February 4, 2022, the initial report was submitted in which it was determined that there was not spatter which would link the shirt to being present at the time of a homicide. However, after investigators with the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division traveled to Oklahoma, which is where this forensic analyst Tom Bevel is located, uh, shortly after that visit, which took place in early March, Bevel produced a different report, one that produced the finding that, yes, there was blood stain evidence on that shirt consistent with someone at the scene of the shooting. So what happened in between? Well, according to attorneys for Murdoch, 
SLED pressured and intimidated this forensic expert into changing his story to provide an outcome that is, again, more favorable to the prosecution and obviously much less favorable to Alec Murdoch. Now, we expected to hear back and forth on this point and on several other points raised by the defense. In fact, one of the points that was raised by the defense last week was whether or not Murdoch should be shackled during his, his court appearances ahead of the trial. They argued that shackling him would uh, potentially create the impressions with members of the jury pool that Murdoch is a criminal. They want to avoid that until he's actually been convicted again. And that's a fair point, I would argue. We're in a system where you're innocent until proven guilty. So assuming the judge has no issue unshackling Murdoch from a public safety standpoint, I have no issue with that either. I think most people would probably agree with that. However, it's interesting, that motion generated a lot of discussion on social media. A lot of folks felt Alec Murdoch should continue to not only wear shackles, but show up in court in his detention center garb. Now, we didn't hear any argument on these motions, though, on the, on the bloody shirt, on the shackles, on any of it, because the hearing in Columbia, South Carolina, on Friday lasted literally five minutes. Basically, the attorneys all agreed that they would get together next week and have a more substantive hearing on it. Now, the reason for this is that Judge Clifton Newman, who's been in charge of all the Murdoch investigations, was in the middle of a murder trial at the time that this hearing was scheduled. He had, in fact, just issued instructions to the jury in that trial regarding their obligations uh, to render a verdict, which if you followed our Lafitte coverage, the Russell Lafitte trial in Charleston, South Carolina, you're very familiar with those jury instructions and how long they take. So what's next in this story? Again, at this point, your guess is as good as mine, folks. But one thing is for sure, you never know what you're going to get. You never know what's going to happen, which is why we came here, which is why we covered it, even though we were in and out of that courtroom in about five minutes. And it's why we'll be here next week, where hopefully these attorneys will be able to go into greater detail on these key points, again, as it relates to the admissibility of important evidence, important testimony tied to this double homicide trial, which, again, is scheduled to take place January 23rd, 2023 in Colleton County, South Carolina. Count on Fitz News to keep you not only up to speed on the latest on the double homicide case, we're going to talk in a moment about the federal case and a potential appeal. We're going to keep you up to speed on the latest developments of that and also the civil cases tied to Alec Murdoch and his alleged web of uh, criminality. Count on Fist News to keep you up to speed on all of those developments as we continue to lead with our coverage of the Murdoch murders crime and corruption saga. So while we're here outside the Richland County Courthouse in the center of Columbia, South Carolina, the dead middle of the Palmetto State, many Murdoch eyes are still focused on Charleston, South Carolina, where in the weeks leading up to Thanksgiving, Russell Lafitte, the disgraced banker who allegedly helped Alec Murdoch orchestrate multiple schemes to defraud his former clients of millions of dollars, was convicted. Convicted on six different counts, folks. Conspiracy, bank fraud, wire fraud, and three counts of misapplying bank funds in relation to those various Murdoch-related schemes. Now, if you followed this trial, and again, our Dylan Nolan Director of Special Projects was down in Charleston for the entire two and a half weeks that trial was underway, gave some amazing blow-by-blow -blow reporting of that, of that trial, of those proceedings. You know how they ended. Two jurors, after nine hours of deliberation, submitted notes to U.S. District Court Judge Richard Gergel indicating various issues they had. One needed medicine. One also felt pressured to change their vote. Another indicated they were experiencing high anxiety. Again, these are very interesting developments for a jury that's been deliberating for about nine hours. Now, rather than send them home and come back the next day, which would have been the day before Thanksgiving, Gergel changed jurors. 
He removed the two jurors who were deemed problematic, one of which was actually termed hostile by their colleagues on the jury. And that decision has created grounds for a, an appeal that we believe is forthcoming any day now. In fact, sources who are familiar with this case have indicated that appeal is either coming later today uh, or early next week as it relates to this case. So again, we're filming this on a Friday. Uh, so if you're listening to this on Saturday, we're talking about what's happening on Friday afternoon on December 2nd, 2022. But that, that appeal is coming, folks. And the reason for the, for the urgency there, an appeal has to be submitted within two weeks. And any motions related to a guilty plea have to be submitted within two weeks after those verdicts are handed down. And in fact, what I'm told is that rather than a specific appeal request, what Lafitte's attorneys are going to ask for is a new trial, a new trial. They're going to ask U.S. District Court Judge Richard Gergel to declare a, a mistrial in the first proceedings and, and, and schedule a new trial. Now, is Gergel going to do that? No, that's not going to happen. And so the appeal of that ruling will be what is advanced to the appellate court for consideration. Now, does Lafitte have a chance here? Yes and no. I've heard from multiple attorneys who have been following federal cases for years that there have been much more egregious, they, they've referred to it, that's their word, not mine, egregious instances of last-minute jury switches uh, that did not result in convictions being overturned. They believe that based on what they've seen from the transcript, which was released, again, last week related to that juror swap at the end of the Lafitte trial, they believe that these convictions will stand. Now, let's assume for a minute, though, that they don't. Let's assume for a minute that uh, Russell Lafitte's convictions are vacated and that a new trial is ordered. Or let's assume Gurgle gets a wild hair and decides, hey, let's, let's run this trial back. Let's do it another time. Only took two and a half weeks, half a million or so of taxpayer money. Let's, let's run it back. Assuming that happens, folks, if you follow Dylan Nolan's coverage of that trial, you know that the federal prosecution team, led by Emily Limehouse, assistant U.S. attorney, and Winston Holiday, delivered a tour de force an absolutely methodical dismantling of Russell Lafitte's contention that he was just a pawn in the schemes of Alec Murdoch. They delivered dozens of documents, incriminating documents, which detailed Lafitte's deception as it related to these financial fleecings. They also heard testimony from witnesses uh, as they introduced that evidence, which further broke down just how culpable he was in connection with these crimes. What's worse, when it was Lafitte's turn to defend himself, Many of his witnesses ended up providing equally incriminating testimony, equally uh, incriminating uh, opportunities for the prosecutors to pounce and show once again just how culpable Lafitte was in this. Now, when Lafitte finally had his turn on the stand, he did make some ground, make some headway. But again, during cross-examination, an incredibly damaging admission when he acknowledged that he failed to pay income taxes on his ill-gotten gains, uh, a, a revelation that drew uh, strong strong rebukes from the federal prosecutors in which they correctly pointed out indicated intent to deceive related to some of these other charges. So just a tour de force by the prosecutors in the Lafitte trial. And so my point in telling you all that, very simple. If this case gets run back for any reason, whether Gurgle's decision or an appeal, it will still be incredibly difficult for Russell Lafitte to emerge from that second trial with an innocent verdict. He again, faces a huge hurdle, and his attorneys, again, assuming they prevail on this appeal, will be right back in the same situation again in short order in the event they get what they want. Now, Fitz News has covered the federal trial from the very beginning. We've covered the murder trial from the very beginning. We've covered this civil case is tied to the story from the very beginning. So if you want to keep up to speed on all the latest, on all the different facets of the Murdoch murders crime and corruption saga, keep it tuned to Fitz News. 
All right, that's a wrap for a very unexpected edition of the Week in Review. We thought we'd be in our studios, but ended up duty called. We're down here in Richland County, South Carolina, outside the county courthouse, where a bunch of news was broken today. Wherever we are, Count on Fitz News to bring you the very latest on all the breaking news here in South Carolina. Appreciate you tuning in and look for us next week on your Week in Review.